the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On this episode, I'm joined by E.J. Chichelnitsky, who's a professor of neurosurgery and ophthalmology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He's working on a groundbreaking concept for an artificial retina that could restore true 2020 vision to those impaired. On the show, we talk about the potential for the artificial retina technology, how EJ's work translates to other fields in brain-computer interface, and the potential for augmentation as we develop new technologies that directly interface with the brain. And now, here's EJ Chichelnitsky. All right, EJ, thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. So to get started, can you tell us just a little bit about your background, how you became interested in neurotechnology, and then a little bit about what you are working on at your lab today? My background is from my PhD work is in vision research, and I've been doing basic science research on the retina for about 20 years. And in doing basic science research on the retina and understanding how the retina captures visual information and transmits it to the brain, at some point we began to realize that our research and what we were learning about the retina could have real implications for developing artificial retinas to treat incurable blindness. So we've been doing that kind of work for about 10 years, gradually going from the most basic experiments to a much more targeted approach to developing a future artificial retina. And how would you describe maybe the unique insight or approach that your lab is using to bring artificial retina to reality? The unique insight we use is that we actually know a lot about how the retina works. And it does not work like a camera. It's not a grid of pixels that you can plug into as a grid. In fact, it does a lot of very interesting processing of visual information. So what that tells us is that in order to faithfully reproduce what the retina normally does, in order to replace the function of a retina in a blind patient, We need to respect that and understand exactly how the retina normally operates. It turns out that attempts at making so-called retinal prostheses over the last couple decades have really not used the information that we have already available about the retina, not to mention the information we've picked up in the last 10 or 20 years, instead of treated the retina like a simple camera device and just put some basic information into it and hope that the results would be good. And the results haven't been that good. They've been interesting as a proof of concept, but they have not been revolutionary in terms of providing high-quality vision. We think that actually using information we know about the retina can really change the game, and I can tell you a lot more detail about that. Yeah, that'd be great. And maybe for our audience who are more lay people in terms of terminology they understand, if I put it into my own words, to my understanding, what you're doing is you're trying to convey very specific signals to specific retinal cells where current solutions might convey one signal to all of the retinal cells. Is that kind of the right way to think about it? That is the right way to think about it. So you can think a little bit of it like this. There are a whole bunch of different cell types in the retina that send information to a whole bunch of different targets in the brain. And each of those cell types is really distinct from all the others, and it connects up to distinct targets in the brain, and it sends a different kind of a signal, which is a different rendition of features of the visual image. So one metaphor you could use would be that the overall message that's sent to the brain, you can think of it a little bit like an orchestra that's playing a symphony. There are different instruments that play different parts in this symphony. There are the violins, there are the cellos, there are the oboes, and so on. Each one plays a different score. 
they play the different set of notes at different set of times. And together, this forms the symphony, if you will, of what the retina sends to the brain. Now, devices that have been developed to treat blindness in this way, so-called retinal prostheses, they don't pay attention to any of that. They treat this orchestra as if it was just one single instrument and tell it to play. So if you treat an orchestra that way, if you're the conductor and you're telling the orchestra what to do, which is what you're trying to do with these devices, and you pay no attention to what the different instruments are, then you'll certainly be able to create some kind of a sound or some kind of a score, but it's very far from the music that you're really trying to reproduce. So we think that by treating the different cell types differently and causing each one of them to play their score independently and distinctly from the others, we can create a much higher fidelity, much more faithful visual image. That's exactly what we're trying to do. That makes a lot of sense. And maybe taking the visual description a step further, your solution with the artificial retina, maybe we could liken that to something like 2020 vision, where this current retinal prosthesis that's available today is maybe like a blurry vision where someone had their glasses knocked off or something like that. Is that a good visualization for the difference between the two? That's a fine visualization. It's hard to know exactly will we get to 2020 or will we get to 2040 or 2030. But yes, existing attempts to get at this, and I don't want to speak poorly of the existing attempts to produce artificial retinas. They took a crack at something really hard and they made it happen in the sense that there are people who have been treated with these devices that are profoundly blind. They've been blind for 30 years or something. And you put one of these devices in there and they see flashes of light, which is pretty cool. And it shows you that it's possible to actually take charge of the visual signals in the retina and do something productive with them. But yes, as you said, it's like having your glasses knocked off. It's not very useful vision. It's rudimentary, crude, coarse, and irregular forms that people perceive. They're very limited. And for the most part, the patients who receive these devices would never give up their guide dog or their cane in exchange for one of these devices. Just gives you a sense that they're not that useful for your daily life. We would like to achieve something that's much more crisp and precise and a good rendition of what's actually out there. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds much more profound. Let me ask a question. As you've built these products or tested these products early on, how much of your work is hardware-focused versus software-focused? That's a great question. There's a lot of both. So the couple of other pieces that you didn't mention but that are also important are neurophysiology focus and surgery. The Neurophysiology focus is the sort of background and the beginning of all of it from our point of view, which is understanding what the different cell types are, what kinds of signals they send to the brain. In other words, studying and understanding that this is a violin and that's a cello and these are their properties. So we know how to conduct them, if you will. The hardware focus is building small, low power devices that can be implanted and can connect up in an effective way to the particular different cells. So that's absolutely necessary, and it's very difficult. And so we have some fantastic colleagues here at Stanford in the electrical engineering area who are helping us with developing the appropriate devices. The software is taking what we know about the retina based on a whole lot of basic science experiments and turning it into algorithms and calculations that can replace its function on a suitably constructed piece of hardware. So there's a lot of back and forth between the hardware and the software, because ultimately the hardware has to be able to implement what the software tells it. And the software is limited by whatever the hardware can accomplish. So these things have to go back and forth a lot. We do a lot of software work in my lab, but we, in my particular lab, we don't develop the hardware. We work with electrical engineers for that. 
There's a few areas there I think I'd like to dive into, maybe starting with just the software. It seems like some of the research you've done may have some immediate application, perhaps, in the broader field of computer vision. So how do you balance maybe working with people that come to you with problems related to machine vision, not necessarily for patient or clinical type applications, versus obviously you have this long-term goal of achieving this artificial retina. So how do you balance the work there? We don't do a lot per se that I think would be impactful in the machine vision world in terms of things that we do, helping machine vision people solve their problems. As you know, that field has experienced spectacular growth in the last five or 10 years, and there's some awesome stuff going on. If anything, we benefit from what's going on in the artificial vision, machine vision world. So, for example, machine learning algorithms turn out to be very useful for some aspects of what we're trying to do, of emulating some of the things that the retina does, of assessing how the brain will receive and respond to the signals that we can provide with an artificial device. For these purposes, we can actually leverage machine learning tools quite effectively. But so far, we haven't attempted to leverage what we've done into computer vision per se. It's interesting. Let me, let me shift gears, I guess, for a minute. And as I think about those four domains you mentioned with hardware, software, the neurophysiology, and sort of the surgery that you're focused on, it seems like those four things certainly have other application to other brain-machine interface-related projects and technology. So how do you think about just extending your work beyond artificial retina to maybe some of these other applications? That's a great question. It's one that's of great interest to me. Like any research or research and development enterprise, we have to focus on one particular target where we feel very confident we can make a difference. And that, of course, is developing the artificial retina, as we just talked about. But at the same time, it's important to keep track of how these efforts can have broader implications. The broadest implication that interests me tremendously is the emerging field of neural interfaces or devices that interface to the brain in one way or another. As we know, there are already a bunch of different neural interfaces available, whether it's sensory prostheses or motor prostheses that allow movement in certain conditions or deep brain stimulation for treating Parkinsonism. And I think if you look into the future, it's pretty easy to predict without sounding too sci-fi about it, that in the future there will be many different kinds of neural interfaces to target many different areas of the brain for treating many different types of disorders. And not too far down the road, I fully expect that we'll be developing interfaces to the brain to augment or increase our capacities to do things, whether that means controlling complex machinery using your sensory systems for doing things that we could never do before, using neural interfaces for communication between people at very high bandwidth, keeping track of large amounts of information, memory, and so on. In all of these applications, the fundamental problem is how do you take a piece of electronics of the kind that we can fabricate with what we know and connect it up to a piece of the brain, which is a bunch of neurons in a circuit sending information to one another via action potentials and chemical synapses. That's a hard problem. The basic problems that we tackle in the retina are all about that. We've got a bunch of cells, got a bunch of different cell types. How do we read out the information from these cells, figure out how to talk to them, and then go ahead and talk to them effectively in order to deliver a visual signal? Many of the things that we study are going to be relevant for all future brain-machine interfaces. And it turns out that today, 
the place where we can make the most progress on this kind of interface is the retina. And the reason for that is that we know a lot about how the retina works, more so than other brain areas. And the retina is very accessible for implanting a device. Compared to any other part of the brain, it's super easy to get access to the retina. So today, meaning in the next few years, we think we can build a pretty spectacular interface to this complex neural circuit. And we think that the lessons we learn from that will be applicable to all neural circuits and all types of connections to the brain. And what I mean by lessons is I mean ideas that we develop, techniques that we develop to interface, and of course, intellectual property. I think all that is highly relevant for figuring out, okay, what are the essential tools we're going to use in the future for all the many different kinds of brain interfaces? There's a few things there that you mentioned that I think I want to touch on. And maybe first is, so it sounds like vision and specifically dealing with the retina, it's sort of like this perfect storm of opportunity where, like you said, it's accessible. We have a fair degree of knowledge about how that part of the brain works. The technology is progressing. Do you think it's five years away that we see something that's really meaningful in terms of moving through an FDA process and getting close to being viable for patients for an artificial retina? My goal is something like that. That's right. Mm -hmm. And of course, these deadlines tend to slip if you're not careful. And even if you are careful, they tend to slip. I think it's quite realistic that in three or four years, we can have a device that's built. Maybe it's not the full-on clinical device, but it's a device that has all of key features in terms of hardware design and software that we can implant in experimental animals and test and understand its effectiveness before we would go into the clinic and test these devices on humans. After we are able to create the experimental device and test it in animals, you know, I would expect that would take another year, then we would presumably have a device that's ready to go to the clinic or at least ready to go into FDA testing. That's a very complex process. There's a lot of regulatory stuff. It's a big deal. How long that takes is a little bit tricky to predict exactly. But at that point, I would have to partner with people who are more expert than I in figuring out how to go through the regulatory process and then make it available for humans. So the five-year timescale you mentioned is ballpark what I'm looking at, and I'm trying not to let those deadlines slip. I think the key thing is getting to the point where we have a device that we can test in animals. And if it works in animals, the, the nature of the way we've designed this tells us that if we can do the correct animal tests, that we should be able to have a high likelihood of succeeding in the clinic. Yeah, I think that's a timeline that will make a lot of listeners happy because it's always difficult, obviously, to predict how long groundbreaking technology like this will come. I think the assumption when a lot of people that are not necessarily doing this day to day think about timelines, it's, it's probably much longer in terms of how they think about things and the maladies that you can cure are just so profound. I think that that's a very good timeline for us to all uh, hope we can hold you to. The other thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier was just augmentation as it comes to neural implants. And I'd like to dig into that just a little bit. And I'm curious from a high level, just how you think about the opportunities and sort of maybe some of the nuances to augmentation of the brain versus the therapeutic uses that we're kind of focused on now. It's a very interesting problem and different individuals approach it in different ways and different agencies approach it in different ways. So many of the health funding agencies that are supporting basic biomedical research are completely uninterested in supporting research on augmentation. On the other hand, there's, I think there's a couple things to say about that. First of all, augmentation, I argue, will be the future. 
that's what we're going to do. We're going to be augmenting our capacities. And I say that because the, the fact is that as we have developed various technologies over time, the closer you can get to your technology, the closer that people do. And we see that every day with people walking around the street holding onto their phones at the same time that they're crossing the street or doing whatever they're doing. They just get closer and closer to their technology if we make that possible. And that gives them the capacity to do things that they could never do before. So I think augmentation is absolutely where humanity is going with these devices. In fact, I believe we're going to co-evolve with our electronic technologies. But at the moment, we still don't even know how to reproduce natural function. So we're trying to get to the point where we can actually restore, if you will, a natural retina and get to something close to the initial capabilities of the retina before we can create augmented devices that allow us to do more. Now, what do I mean by doing more? And so here is where it gets very interesting. And I think very subtle. It reveals a, a subtlety that is not obvious to many people, which is that there's no bright line, really, between therapeutic interventions and augmentation. And I think that can be illustrated in a very simple way with the following extremely simple fact. I told you that there are retinal prostheses available now that are very crude and they provide a very crude form of vision. They're not super useful, but they show that it's possible. Okay. On these devices, achieving some amount of infrared vision is really simply a matter of making sure that you don't have an infrared filter in front of your camera, because most cameras are natively sensitive to infrared. So you actually have to suppress the ability of your system to take in infrared light. And if you don't, you're all of a sudden going to be sensitive to wavelengths of light that normal humans are not sensitive to. That doesn't mean it's going to be super useful. We could discuss that. That's a whole technical discussion. But my point is that as soon as you build a device that can provide an unnatural input to the brain, you are right on the threshold of augmentation, even if you, you might even have crossed over into the realm of augmentation. So I personally don't see any line between those two. I think it's all about trying to understand how effectively we can interface to those neural circuits and produce interesting patterns of neural activity that can be readily interpreted by the brain. And maybe just my last question before our speed round question is, and, and maybe there's a biased answer here, but I'm just curious in terms of improving patient quality of life before we get to augmentation. What do you think is sort of the most impactful therapeutic BMI application that we'll see there? Is it vision or is there something else that you're really excited about that we haven't talked about yet? In our lifetimes or just in, in general or in the next 10 years, I think it all depends on time scale. I would say let's keep it to the next 10 years. I think visual restoration and visual augmentation are one of the biggest ones in the next 10 years. I think people will be able to fine-tune things like deep brain stimulation. There are those who have argued that people should be building a memory implant to be used in five or ten years. I think that's not plausible because we just don't understand how the memory system of the brain works well enough to do that, let alone how to interface to it. I think actually limiting factors for interfacing to many areas of the brain are very significant, both in terms of the basic science knowledge that we don't have in a lot of these areas and in terms of how do we actually get enough electrodes into that part of the brain to create an interesting signal. So as you know, there are a couple of companies out there that are actively working on brain-machine interfaces, startup companies. And I won't mention their names here unless you wish to. But they're serious, and they have a serious injection of money, and they're trying to take a swing at a couple of different kinds of brain augmentation. 
what they're working on to start with is just how do you even connect the circuit? How do you even get enough electrodes or reasonable electrodes into the brain? We're talking very rudimentary stuff, let alone how do you talk to the circuit and how do you get an interesting signal in there? I think that in terms of the situation where we see a real impact and we see striking reproduction of the native capacities and striking capacity to augment our sensations and let's say and give us a chance to see things that we've never seen before i really think vision is the place over the next 10 years absolutely and i I don't know what the accurate statistic is i've seen numbers from 30 to 50 percent of sort of our brain activity is related to vision so obviously it does command a huge portion of how we sense the world and i think that you're right if we can improve that for people who have deficiencies there it's a huge quality of life improvement I think so, and I hope so, and an augmentation capability. The idea of being able to provide ourselves with much more powerful visual sensations and thereby feed an immense amount of information into the brain is a big deal. And like you said, a big chunk of the brain is devoted partially or entirely to processing visual information. We have a huge amount of capacity to take in visual signals and use it in interesting ways. If we can connect our devices in a very direct way to the circuit, and introduce patterns of activity under our full control, the possibilities are pretty stunning. Absolutely. So EJ, let me ask you our last question. It's a fun question we ask everyone we have on the podcast, and it is, what's your favorite neuroscience-related book that you would recommend we all read? (laughs) I am going to have to think about that one. Can I take that one offline? We'll converse over email, and we'll put it in the show notes. Okay, that would be best for me. Okay, perfect. (laughs) There's not a lot is the problem. And so I hesitate to recommend something without having something I think will appeal to a lot of readers. Perfect. We'll follow up on that. That alone is, I think, informative too, in terms of where we should spend time doing our reading. Well, perfect. EJ, that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We have a tradition on the Neurotech podcast to ask all of our guests for their favorite neuroscience related book. I didn't get to that in this episode, but I did ask EJ after the interview what he would recommend as his favorite book. He gave it a little bit of thought and suggested a book called Portraits of the Mind by Carl Schoonover. It's really a fascinating book about pictures of the brain and the eye and also of data collected about the brain. In EJ's words, it it sort of shows the beauty that motivates many neuroscientists to pursue their work and gives a sense of the kind of complex data that they look at every day in trying to decipher how the brain works. It's a great recommendation, and I hope you all check it out. Thank you for listening.